So every year with a group of friends, I take a trip to go skiing. And many of you already know that I was recently on this ski trip a couple weeks ago because our host, Wesley News, who was up here, told you to give me a hard time. So I found this out after I returned, but this trip I was on is one I do every year. It's with a group of eight guys um, a long time ago um, in college, which you think a long time ago. Listen, if you haven't seen the gray starting to appear in my beard, this is 20 years ago when I was in college. So it's been some time. We got in a vehicle, drove to Colorado, and went skiing together, and we have been going together as a group, and just a rich time of friendship. These are guys that I served in ministry with during in college as young life leaders and part of our trip together besides skiing something that we do each time we visit a a spot is we go to a restaurant um, that is well known in the area it's uh, perhaps uh, it's really a fancy restaurant not perhaps it's definitely a fancy restaurant and we sit down at a fancy restaurant in these towns and we look at these menus and here's the scene that takes place very often we're looking at this brand new menu knowing we're probably never going to come back here to this restaurant. And so as we look at that, we think, what should we get? What should we order? We want to make sure that we get the best of what they have to offer, and we're going to pay quite a bit of cash for this meal, so I don't really want to mess it up, you know? And we, we've known this over the years. Sometimes someone, usually in the group, gets a dud of a meal. And you don't want to be that person. You want yours to be the right one. And so you start to think and then the, the, the bargaining starts to happen. You start to talk to somebody who's sitting next to you. What, what are you going to get? And then you start to work, like work out a trade system. And, and you try and talk them into getting something that you might be interested in. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. This is how it works. And then we start to say, this is what I do. We ask the, the server, well, what would you recommend? And the reason you do that, you know, is because if you don't like it, you can blame them, right? <laughs> this is how it works. We, we, we recognize that and uh, the whole thing becomes this total mess of anxiety. And I recognize that as I set this scene for you, you're thinking, wow, tough, tough life you must have there. That's a first world problem if I've ever heard of one before, right? <laughs> and I'm slightly embarrassed to even tell you such a story because... But, but I know that whether it's a fancy restaurant for you or whether it's Arby's, which has like all the meat, right? They, you've presented with a bunch of choices and you've thought, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to choose the wrong one. You've experienced something similar in your life. I wondered if you've been plagued before by anxiety because you are afraid of making the wrong choice. Have you ever worried that you're going to mess it up? I know that I do, and it's not just with meals. I can remember being in the hospital when my daughter was born and thinking as I held her, I'm responsible for a human being. That as I hold her and I think, I, I have no idea how to do this. And then you pretend, right? Because you, you pretend when they come in there in the hospital, you buckle them into the car seat, which you have no idea, they don't seem to fit, and you're like, yeah, I know exactly what I'm doing. And, and I had this feeling As you walk out, like, I can't believe they're letting me leave with the child. (laughs) I don't know if I'm alone in that, but I I left and sometimes feel like I'm so afraid I'm going to mess this up. I'm so afraid I'm going to do something that just completely ruins it all. And if you happen to see my beautiful children running around here uh, who love Jesus and you think, well, 
you did all right. It's because I have an outstanding wife. Uh, But in some very quiet moments, inside of my heart, there's another type of anxiety that I experience. Where I wonder and think, are my prayers really enough? What if I don't say the right things or didn't have the right words when I was baptized? What if God's grace runs out for me? What if I sin too often or too much? What if I'm not generous enough? What if I mess my salvation up? I wonder how many of you here have ever experienced a level of anxiety or worry or fought against that? And being real with you today, to be honest, makes me want to just turn around and run and hide in the corner. But I, I say it and I'm real with you because I believe that I'm not alone in this room today. I know this because it reminds me of a conversation I had. I was in ministry in South Carolina for a number of years and a church leader there we were having a conversation. I will never forget this conversation. It was a man who had been a church leader, old enough to be a grandfather at the time. He said something I'll never forget. We were speaking about heaven and about eternity, and he said this. He said, I think I might just make it into heaven by the skin of my teeth. And surprised, I asked him what he meant. He said, well, I've been at church every time the doors are open. I try to do what's good. I think I might just make it in. And that phrase stuck with me. Do we really get into heaven by the skin of our teeth? This is salvation anxiety. Worrying if we've done enough or attended enough or given enough. Friends, this is often the world we find ourselves in, and this is the dialogue in the secret places of our hearts where we worry that we might mess things up. Will we exhaust the grace of God? And this can lead us to living in a way where we are anxious about our salvation. And so among a group of people in Ephesians who might also have been anxious about salvation, Paul gives this teaching in the first chapter. He opens and offers grace and peace at the beginning of the chapter. And what we find in these words that follow as we wade through the doctrine of predestination as we studied last week and our teaching today on redemption, what we find is that God gives grace and peace to us. My fellow worriers, God gives grace and peace. For people who have no basis for hope in themselves, we find trust in the work of God the Father and his provision of his own Son. So we've been studying in Ephesians chapter 1. So many wonderful discussions have just come forth out of this. I just have enjoyed this whole week getting to hear you all dialogue with one another about what we've been studying as as we've made it through this past week together. uh, So many conversations in life groups and on Monday night our great questions was all about this idea of election and I've heard of those of you who even met for coffee this week with 
one another because your life group time was not long enough to talk it through. Can we just pause for a moment and say, how cool is that, that as a church, we are spending time engaged in dialogue about what God is doing in our lives. I love it. This is exactly what we want to be about. I love our church, and I love that we get to spend some time in Ephesians chapter 1 as we go through this together. If you've been with us, you remember, this is one big thought in verse 3 through 14, but it is broken up into little sections, and so we're going to continue with our little section this week. We're going to be in verse 7, and it's just the thought switches just a little bit where we are. We, we would look back and we would say the previous part is talking about the blessing of elections past. And today we get to look at how we are celebrating our present redemption. And then next week we'll look to its future effect. So we have past election, present redemption, and the future promise or the guarantee. So we're going to begin in verse 7 again and work through it a little at a time. In verse 7, in him, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul is writing to us and has just written about how we can celebrate and praise God for what he's done in his grace. But what does this consist of? We find in verse 7, redemption, which in its simplest form, redemption just means to buy back or to provide a price or a ransom payment. So, in other words, you would think if you've been redeemed, you've been bought back. If you have not yet been redeemed, you are captive. I was thinking about the idea of being captive, and this is such a difficult uh, thing for us to experience in the United States of America because we are the land of the free. We struggle to understand captivity simply because of where we live. We experience freedom at such a deep and fundamental level in our country. But here's what, I, what we need to recognize. If we fail to understand captivity, then we're going to fail to rightly understand redemption. And so we need to understand captivity. And our struggle in this, we need to talk this out. We need to work this out. What does this mean to struggle with this idea of captivity? I think that we have a hard time with it because it's just not often a part of our lives. I was thinking for me, what am I captive to in my life? I thought of this wonderful example. I'm captive to Comcast Internet because I long for the freedom of fiber in Greene County, right? Well, I was thinking about if you're a student, you are a captive to your school, and you long for the freedom of graduation, and all the adults with full-time jobs laugh. But have you ever seen videos of people online where they're resisting police or to be detained for just a moment, like not even arrested, just detained, and they're like, "Uh, this is a free country, you can't hold me back, and they just fight back against this. I think it's a picture of this idea that we struggle with this idea of captivity because of where we live in this land of the free. But the Bible teaches very clearly that we have been a slave to sin. And this is a difficult teaching. Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18 says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. 
Scripture teaches that we are, are slaves to a number of masters. As we've just read in Romans, that we are slaves to sin, the law, death, false gods, and Satan's kingdom. These are deceitful masters that the old self, the Bible says, was a slave to. But most people who are under the rule or the captivity of these masters perceive in their lives a sense of freedom because they operate in a sense freely and yet within a limited sphere. And so it is difficult even then to grasp the idea of captivity. But we must hear the truth from Scripture that says the price for our ransom from sin's captivity is the sacrifice of God's Son. The gift of the life of Jesus frees us from our captivity to sin. And if we ask about this ransom payment, to whom was this ransom paid? We might realize for just a moment that this human analogy of a payment of a ransom has some limits when it comes to the atonement of the work of Christ. We can't press it in every detail because although we were in bondage to sin and to Satan, there was no ransom that was paid to sin, no ransom that was given to Satan himself, for they did not have power to demand such a payment. Nor was Satan the one whose holiness was offended by our sin and required the death of Jesus. But we hesitate also to say that a ransom was paid to God the Father because it was not he who held us in bondage, but Satan and our own sins. And so you can see at this point the idea of a ransom has some limitations and we can't press it in every detail. So let us just speak as scripture does, and say that the, there was a price that was paid, the blood of Christ, and the result is that we were redeemed from the bondage of sin. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. The work of God in our lives is not reactionary as we learned last week it's not something that God was on his heels waiting but from the foundation of the world God determined to bring about redemption in Christ if you were with us last week we read verse 4 it says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him Look at that holy and blameless and then you see the connection where we are in verse 7 where it says we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness of sins is something that even in the Old Testament uh, God granted because of the shedding of the blood of animals. For example, Israelites were very familiar with the slaughter of a lamb and the shedding of innocent blood. And in spiritual terms, what this meant was that uh, the people were spared as an innocent life was taken. These animal sacrifices are something that are a little foreign to us, but they were constantly reminding the people that sin has a penalty and a price. And when we trespass or when we cross a boundary that God has set for us in the way that we obey or we veer off the path he's designed for our righteousness, there is a penalty that that requires. But unlike the Israelites, we're not constantly seeing the weight of our sin and the slaughter of an animal. 
And so this, among many other things, is perhaps the result for a contemporary view among the church that God doesn't really take sin very seriously. Yeah, he acknowledges that evil is evil, and, uh, but what he does is he simply forgives it, as if God just sets aside his requirement and forgives without penalty. Like, poof, your sin, it just dissolves into the air. This is called, if you're kind of the nerd and you want to research this, the governmental theory of atonement. This theory, along with a whole bunch of others that we're not really able to talk about, simply are not scriptural. And we see that coming to light in our text today. The redemption that we see is by the means of the blood of Christ. And nothing could speak louder about the the serious view that God has in regards to our sin. And so here together, we remind ourselves at First Christian Church weekly of this as we share in communion each week in our worship. We pause to take seriously that our sin resulted in the the blood that was shed by our Savior. And we recall in Matthew chapter 26, 28, where Jesus says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our sin was forgiven by the pouring out of Jesus' blood. It was his work in salvation that accomplished exactly what God intended. His blood is enough for you. And this is something to celebrate. This is reason to give praise because it's beyond what positive thinking or therapy or hypnosis can provide. This is complete forgiveness extending to the conscious and unconscious sin in our lives because God knows all things and his work is sufficient for us and this this churchy word that we talk about is atonement which is bringing together that which has been alienated or separated and this passage that we learn about atonement is so rich we've already discovered last week predestination and we hear and think about atonement this week And we've had so many great conversations as we've referenced. This teaching in scripture is so good for us because we see that Christ is both a substitution. He suffered in our place, but also a satisfaction in the justice and the wrath of God being satisfied. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18 and 19, it says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you have time this week, please read 1 Peter chapter 1, they're all like 13 to 25, because basically every commentary on Ephesians 1 references this passage in 1 Peter. And this extended passage, it talks about the gospel, the atonement, and God's plan since the foundation of the world. Okay, seriously, I'm like eight pages into the sermon and we're in one verse. Uh, so I've got I've to start moving, got to start going fast. But can I just say, I was talking to somebody this week about preaching through Ephesians. I was telling them, I'm preaching, I'm doing like Ephesians 1, verse 7 through 10. And they're like, whoa, seriously, like a whole sermon on three verses? And I was like, well, actually, yeah, it's four verses. We're going to do all of them. But yeah, it's, we're going to go deep in, in the word this week. And so we're going to keep going. We're going to get through the rest. Let's keep going. Verse 7, in him we have a redemption through his blood 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Redemption and forgiveness of sins, what this is teaching is that it's in accordance with, not out of, in accordance with, not out of God's riches and grace. There's a difference there. Think about this. The one who possesses all of the riches of the universe doesn't like reach into his pocketbook and drop a few pennies for us and say, there's a little bit of grace for you. No, out of his vast riches, it says he lavished us in accordance with his riches of his grace in all wisdom and insight. Now, depending on your translation you're reading from, we're in the ESV together on screen, but depending on what you're reading, verse 8 may be phrased slightly differently. The reason is that there's some debate as to whether the phrase, with all wisdom and insight, qualifies the following participle, or whether it refers to God's own, uh, in referring to God's own wisdom and insight, or whether it is the preceding clause which is referring to God's wisdom and insight in other words whether this is wisdom and insight that is for us or whether it is God's well both are really cool both of those things provide incredible meaning to us and if you look closely at at, uh, the book of Colossians which is very tightly related to the book of Ephesians Paul actually describes both of those things in Colossians chapter 2 as something that believers should desire wisdom and understanding we should uh, strive for those things but also affirming in verse 3 of chapter 2 that these are God's these gifts belong to God so ultimately both readings are supported by scripture ultimately both readings are super cool and so I love how the ESV translators have decided to just phrase it grammatically so that we could read it either way. Isn't that really interesting? The grammar in both is acceptable, which, by the way, verse 3 through 14 is all one huge sentence with no commas, punctuation, all capital letters squished together. So it's not like there's a right way to do that. Let's keep going. Verse 8, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ. How many of you have ever felt like God's will is a mystery? Well, Paul calls it a mystery, and it's not about like being, it being complex. It's not about it being uh, just hard to grasp or understand as much as what Paul's talking about being about the timing of God revealing it. Think about this for a moment. The anxiety that we often experience in regards to knowing God's will is something that we often approach as if there's a riddle to it, as if somehow it's a puzzle for us to figure out. But that's not what scripture is saying, is that God reveals it in his time. And that what this points us towards instead of anxiety is faith. It points us towards faith where we might otherwise lack it, that God made known to us the mystery of his will because he was purposed, or another way to read that, he was pleased to do so. These are amazing words that God has has given to us. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I can't think of anything 
that might provide more optimism for the church than to look at the future of the planet and to affirm that our future, our reality, the world's reality is in the hands of God alone. However, a word of caution about verse 10. This verse has been used as like the keystone verse for a doctrine of universalism, which would say that all people are saved in the end. And I would just say that to dive that much to create a doctrine out of one verse um, is, is really just poor study and poor exegesis. This is, is not consistent with the rest of Scripture. We do not find universal salvation in the Bible, but rather what is provided in verse 10 for us is a beautiful ending to our text that says that God purposed all things in heaven and in earth to be under one head in Jesus Christ. The same one through whom all things were made, by whom they were made, and for whom they were made will receive all things at the end of time. The goal of creation is not chaos. Our future is not uncertain. We are headed towards unity in Christ. And so we are not left with some riddle to decode as if we have to figure it out before the buzzer goes off. Consider this, because it changes your anxiety that you might feel, that we can have confidence in the finished work of Jesus. We can know that his blood is enough. Can we hold to that confidence together, friends? What if we did that here in Afton, with our words and our actions and our demeanor that we pointed towards confidence, not in ourselves, but in God? Not like we're arrogant or we're smug because we've got it all figured out. Quite the opposite. This truth from Scripture should humble us. And strangely, the opposite sometimes occurs. We fall into this pride as if I've got it all figured out and look down our noses at people and puff up ourselves wrongly. That is not the right reaction to this passage. Imagine, though, what would happen if we do take the right posture and we do have a sense of confidence in the work of Christ. Think about the impact to our community because we live in one of the most anxious times we could ever imagine. What a witness it is to our friends and neighbors if we live as a people of peace because we trust in the work of God through Christ. This can become a foundation for us this can be a place that we cling to when the swirling doubts begin to rise up within us. We would find and we would, we would find in this a confidence. When we wonder if we've ever done enough, we remember these truths. Let me close with one thought for you. This world that we live in perhaps tries really hard to reconstruct Christianity apart from its central focus of personal salvation. That is to say, people want Christianity without redemption. The press is towards identity in a personal way, perhaps to some cultural identity or some ethnic identity or a gender identity that begins to define you above Christ. This pull away from biblical redemption is one in which we must avoid. 
the heart of scriptural teaching. The message that comes to us is that our identity has been changed, not by anything in ourselves, because we would boast if it were. This is a gift of God in accordance with the riches of his grace. And so may we live in that, friends, dwelling in the lavishness of his grace, resting with full assurance that his work is enough for you to the praise of his eternal glory. O oh God of all eternity, your wisdom, Father, are humbling they place us rightly in position to give you praise. And so we stand in awe of what you have done and are doing in us. Be pleased today at the reading of your word in our presence. And would you move by your Holy Spirit, living and active God, to help us to rest where we might feel anxious, to help us to lean into the truth provided for us. Awaken us to become missionaries in Afton to work and to move for the sake of your kingdom and your glory. God, would you be glorified in us, we pray. Amen.